Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. If you're not familiar with us, we are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California, where it is currently beautiful and sunny, if a little bit cold. Uh, Cold for us, anyway. Um, I'm so excited today. We're going to have a great conversation with... um, with two authors who have both written books about the Nobel Prize, one of which is just coming out. Um, But before I introduce them, I just wanna say a few words about uh, the store. So right now we're open every day, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on weekdays and 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. on weekends. Um, We ask that you wear a mask and socially distance and sanitize your hands and all that good stuff. Um, And we highly, highly encourage you to come in and get your holiday shopping done as soon as you can. Um, As you know, this is a wild and weird year and uh, we're expecting all kinds of delays in mail and in printing and in distribution and all that kind of stuff. So if you want to get your books, it's best to try and get them early. Um, I know I'm, I've been banging this drum a lot on the podcast, but I'm doing it again, just in case you didn't catch it before. Um, all right. And uh, other things of note, we've got a couple more great events coming up for the rest of November and uh, a few in December. So follow our Crowdcast page, uh, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks for all the latest updates. You can also watch replays of all of our past events on that page as well for free, absolutely free, just like this podcast. You're welcome. We love you. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce the book we're going to be talking about today, which is Betraying the Nobel, The Secrets and Corruption Behind the Nobel Peace Prize, um, which is going to delve into the surprising and often corrupt history of the Peace Prize and examine what the committee hoped to obtain by its choices, including the now infamously awarded Cordell Hull, as well as Henry Kissinger, Al Gore, and Barack Obama. Um, So this book kind of looks at the effects of increased media attention, which has turned the Nobel into a popularity prize and a controversial and provocative commendation. Um, All right, so the author of the book is Norwegian-born Uni Turatini. She's the author of The Mystery of the Lone Wolf Killer and also the author of Betraying the Nobel. Um, Through her writing and speaking, Uni is on a mission to restore trust in leadership by encouraging women to fully step up and into their true feminine power. She also works as a coach for high-achieving women. She has law degrees from Norway, France, and the United States, and is a member of the New York Bar. She worked numerous years in law and finance before she began writing. In conversation with Uni today, we have Brian Keating. Brian Keating is a Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences, CASS, in the Department of Physics at the University of California, San Diego. He is a public speaker, inventor, and an expert in the study of the universe's oldest light, the cosmic microwave background, using it to learn about the origin and evolution of the universe. Keating is a pioneer in the search for the earliest physical evidence of the inflationary epoch, a theorized period of expansion of space in the early universe directly after the Big Bang. Okay, I totally want to hear more about this, but we're going to focus on the Nobel today. (laughs) Um, Physicists predict that this evidence will reveal itself as a particular pattern in the way CMB light is polarized. This pattern is referred to as a B-mode pattern. Okay, so I hope all of you are Googling frantically right now to learn all of these terms. 
Um, Brian Keating is also the author of the book, Losing the Nobel Prize. So we're gonna bring it back around today to the Nobel. Um, Uni and Brian, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you and get into this conversation. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm so honored also to have Brian here and to have this conversation with him. So this is, I'm looking forward. Yeah, thank you very much, guys, for hosting this and bringing much needed attention to Uni's uh, scintillating book. It's uh, really a thrill to be attached to her rising star. And I should know because I'm a cosmologist. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful joke. Chef's kiss on that one. Um, Uni, do you want to start us off with a short reading from the book? Yeah, I'll do that. Absolutely. So this is from the introduction um, of the book. So I'll just start. No other prize holds more prestige than the Nobel. An aura of admiration surrounds it. As 1984 winner Desmond Tutu put it, no sooner had I got the Nobel Peace Prize than I became an instant oracle. Virtually everything I had said before was now received with something like awe. No other award is followed by just about every country in the world and commented on by just about every newspaper and television network. However, the Nobel Peace Prize as we know it is corrupt at its core. The Prize, former secretary and director of the Nobel Institute, Geir Lundestad, said to the Norwegian state television station, NRK, in 2014, has not become renowned because the committee rewards the Red Cross and Nelson Mandela, but rather because of its controversial cho choices. Controversial choices are fine as long as the committee as executors of Alfred Nobel's last will sticks to his instructions. Nobel wanted the Norwegian Nobel Committee to select peace champions to act as role models for the rest of us. Naming someone a peace champion then is a risky business. First, the committee's choice may not be everyone's cup of tea or have the most convenient political leanings. Second, the committee cannot predict how a Nobel laureate will behave in the aftermath of the prize. What if the winner doesn't turn out to be the beacon of hope and inspiration the committee had hoped for? Thus, the committee must show courage and conviction in their choices, because history will reflect back to them and their choices, making it all the more vital that the committee research their candidates properly. The Norwegian Nobel Committee, Lundestad said, must dare to speak when others don't. No matter how honorable his statement is, many, including Michael Nobel, the great-grandson of Ludwig Nobel, Alfred's brother, believe the committee has created its own prize. A prize not necessarily with peace in mind, nor one that selects winners in accordance with Alfred Nobel's last will. Selecting winners who are clearly not peace champions creates distrust. But the Nobel Peace Prize as an institution isn't alone in this. Today, trust in leadership is also at a historic low in governments and corporations. An increasing rage is spreading worldwide as lower and middle class citizens feel ignored, taken advantage of, and abused. And abused. The Yellow Vest protest in France started in November 2018, when about 280,000 people took to the streets in cities across the country to push back against a proposed tax increase, which, according to protesters, is part of a scheme run by President Emmanuel Macron and his government to favor the wealthy to the detriment of the lower and middle class population. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I'm gonna just skip for a little bit. Um, the de demonstrations that have erupted in the 2019 World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, over corporate power and economic inequality reflects the same rage. Asia has also seen uprisings. A movement of protests began in Hong Kong in June 2019 over an extradition bill to mainland China, which was feared to threaten Hong Kong's judicial independence and endanger dissidents. 
Although the bill was withdrawn in September 2019, the demonstrations continue as of this writing in June 2020, despite COVID-19 social distancing, distancing rules, demanding full democracy and an increased inquiry into police actions. Meanwhile, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the COVID pandemic continues to cause people around the world to fall grievously ill. Similarly, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee is showing an example of leadership that is divisive instead of unifying. Instead of making the bold choices our world needs, it has fallen into the temptation of power and politics. It has been swayed by popularity and fame instead of standing up for the true values of the Nobel Peace Prize, Alfred Nobel's intentions of peace and unity. As a consequence, unworthy candidates have been chosen and other more disturbing ones, including Mahatma Gandhi, has been ignored, have been ignored. The committee's betrayal, betrayal may not always have been intentional. Since Alfred Nobel's death in 1896, our societies have changed and so has warfare. This book will examine how the committee has widened the scope of Nobel's prize of Nobel's Prize and the inconsistencies that have led to criticism. Before people and organizations are put on pedestals, especially one as lofty as the Nobel, it is imperative to examine what those pedestals rest on. Only then will we know the true worth of a prize. By shining light on today's dysfunctions and proposing a solution, my hope is that portraying the Nobel can be a catalyst for change, not only in the Peace Prize Committee, but for the rest of us to step up and become the peace champions our local and global environment needs. That's really uh, uh, inspirational words from you, Uni, and I, it reminds me of how we met, which is uh, very serendipitous. We met through a friend of a friend of a friend, and uh, what greater ambassador of uh, of of peace can one ask for than to have friends look out for one and uh, make such wonderful introductions. I, I told, uh, I told my friends that I'm speaking with uh, a soul sister, as we would say, you know, it's a sister in, in arms, because I think we both have a mission to make the world better and kind of restore what Alfred Nobel wanted. And I wanted to just, um, ask you about, you know, we, we talked about this once before, but the esteem in which Alfred really held this prize and what he wanted for it and the unknown aspects of his life that you bring to light in this book, I found those to be the most delightful aspects of this book, the way that you sprinkled throughout this book, vignettes and stories in his own words. What do you think it would have been like to know Alfred Nobel and what, what would you want to ask him about uh, his intentions so nobly for the world? Yeah. Oh, oh wow. Uh, I would have loved to meet him. I mean, he was, what a character, right? And what a, a brilliant, brilliant man. And uh, with such noble intentions, really, he did have, I mean, he was, he invented a lot of, uh, I think, I believe he had, didn't he have like 355 inventions yeah, at the end of right. his life, right? Yeah. And he died at 63 years old. So he was, yeah. you know, quite a young man. Um, and so, and well, and his, well, he's, most famously known for is dynamite. That was his great, great invention. And um, I would, you know, I would have wanted to ask him, I mean, I, I believe, I strongly believe that he, um, he invented dynamite and he really had a noble intention also with that. Although of course dynamite would be used for, you know, not so noble um, things later on. It was, I mean, because it's it's dangerous, right? It's an explosive. Um, but he really wanted to create a better world with it. He wanted to, you know, to improve infrastructure. He just wanted um, people to be able to communicate and connect with each other, um, create unity. And, you know, we have spoken about this before, Brian. I mean, he really, that was his intention with all of the, the five prices, right? That he... Um, that he, uh, in physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, and peace. So not only the Peace Prize was set up with the intention to create a, a better and more peaceful world, all of his prizes were. That's what, I mean, that's what, at least what we believe. And 
I, I would have just loved to just pick his brains and just, you know, sit down with him and have a talk about his, his intentions because he never really in his last will, he never really said anything about it. He, he, you know, it's, it's, it's his intentions become clear from learning about his life and the history or, you know, about, around him and, and, and everything else. But it's sort of this, you know, we're, we're taking a lot of guesses too. And especially with regards to the peace prize, I would love to ask him why he picked Norway, right? Because yeah. he was Swedish and all the other prizes are given out by Swedish institutions. So like what happened with the peace prize then? And so, and I think that, you know, we, we've already spoken about this, I believe. And it's, it's, and he never said, he never wrote anything about why he did. And it was, came as quite a surprise. Um, and a lot of people in Sweden, you know, uh, post, you know, giving out, like handing over the peace prize to a different country. And, um, but uh, I believe that he saw Norway as this, remote country without its own military power. Norway was governed by Sweden at the time, right? So um, it wasn't really involved in any of the sort of the power politics of, of Scandinavia or Europe. So, and I, I'm, I'm, as an educated guest, I would say that he really wanted to, um, to make sure the peace prize stayed out of politics. Right. So that, but I would love to, I would have loved to ask him about that. What was his thoughts? You know, yeah. <laughs> basically just speculating. Yeah. But he, so he comes across in, in a vivid way through your writing and in, in, a, in a way, quite frankly, I didn't expect to, to encounter, but then in retrospect, after having, you know, delved more deeply into your previous book, the mystery of the lone wolf killer, um, I see that you have this journalistic eye as well as a legalistic mind. Uh, you're trained as a lawyer, but you basically write these thrillers based on uh, non-fictional events. I want to ask, because uh, something that speaks to me when, uh, you know, my book's about the non-political prizes, aka the, the science prizes and, and the prizes in, in medicine and economics, et cetera, uh, but not, and not about the Peace Prize. I always felt the Peace Prize was closest to Alfred's heart. But I want to ask you, um, when I was recently encountering this talk here in America that Donald Trump uh, was, you know, perhaps being considered, he was nominated for next year's prize uh, in peace. And he was actually advocating on his own behalf. And I was thinking, here's the, you know, currently we're in the you know, aftermath of the election, right? But, uh, but before this in October, he was the, you know, he had the highest, you know, position in the whole world, the most power. And yet, he was spending hours and hours of time advocating that he should win the Nobel Peace Prize. And I wonder uh, why that is. Why does it have so much allure? And how does it connect to the previous president who won a Nobel Prize in your mind as part of the reason why you wrote this book? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, so when Barack Obama won in 2009... Um, that really, I mean, I always followed the Nobel Peace Prize and I was always very proud as a Norwegian citizen um, that my home country gave out this prestigious prize. Um, but then when um, Obama won in 2009, I remember thinking, hmm, that's strange. He had been in office less than two weeks when he was nominated. And then when they announced the prize in October that year, he had been in office approximately eight months. So he hadn't really started um, doing much yet. And also he was given the prize of, of a sort of future, you know, potential and hopes, you know, but, um, and then I decided, I decided because what, when the, the, the chairman of the committee announced the prize, there were some um, journalists present, and they were really, um, asking and they were digging into so why like what has Obama actually done not just holding speeches but what has he actually done and the committee chairman couldn't really answer and then after you know some back and forth and some trying to vaguely respond he he felt pressed and he said we want to send a signal to the world and so I went went on a mission really to figure out okay what's this signal that they want to send to the world. 
And what is, and, and does that correspond with Alfred Nobel's signal and intentions with his price? So that was really my initial quest. So that started in 2009. And then, so it, it took me a while, you know, this research and then I wrote the other book in the meanwhile and, and um, in the meantime. And so it was really uh, a curiosity um, and also knowing that the committee is consisting of, you know, five members sits on the committee and they are all politicians selected by the Norwegian parliament. And what I found was that a lot of the prices, not all of them, of course, they have given out some good prices too, but a lot of the prices were um, in, you know, were really um, consistent with the Norwegian government's foreign policy or um, a wish from the government to strengthen political ties with, for, for example, the US. And we see this throughout the history from the very beginning of the price, which is a little more than hundred years uh, now. So it's, it's quite, it was quite shocking to me really to discover this. And that was really um, also why I thought that, okay, this, that people should know this, you know, and, and um, we've spoken about this before, but the committee is very, um, they are not receptive at all to any sort of suggestions or criticism as to how they should do their job. They're sitting there, these five people, high up on their pedestal, and they really um, believe that they answer to no one, that they can do exactly what they want. And, um, and I think we as, the general population has the responsibility of telling our leader, leaders, not just the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, but all leaders that, okay, we, you know, we, we, we notice what you're doing and we're not like, we're asking some questions here. Yeah. For and, accountability. Right. Yeah. So, because the Nobel Peace Prize is supposed to be a beacon of hope. It is supposed to be an inspiration. The leaders that they pick should be people that we all want to follow, right? Yeah. Yeah, we look at it and we wonder, do they have any accountability? And what I found with my book in the science prizes and chemistry and physics and medicine, uh, they really, you know, they, they do make some overtures to people outside of Sweden in this case, but it's, there's also the effect of the mandate that they have internally, maybe unwritten mandate to protect the monopoly that is the Nobel Prize. And I think there is no greater monopoly in the sense, in the, in, at least in the sciences, uh, yeah. but, and maybe in peace too. I don't know of anything that comes remotely close. And so because of that, I think they have a more, uh, you know, kind of duty to be more accountable to the world community. They're put out as a world prize and whether they like it or not, uh, they do get a lot of attention. It's one of Norway's biggest celebrations, right? And these are awarded, not on the day Alfred Nobel was born, right? And on the day he, he died, Hi, uh, yeah, December yeah. 10th, coming soon. So what in, when you think about some of the people that have been nominated, so I read a list of the, the people that were nominated uh, and didn't win, uh, thank, thankfully, but, uh, but there are some egregious examples that did win. So first of all, Mussolini was nominated, Hitler was nominated. Stalin was nominated. Now, these are people that in contradistinction to Alfred Nobel's wish, he said, we want the winners to, I want the winners to go to people that held peace congresses and, uh, and reduce the world's standing armies. I remember when D Desmond Tutu, who you quoted earlier, he wrote, uh, you know, a scathing rebuke when the, uh, I believe it was the European Union or NATO or, or somebody, some military organization effectively, or Europe, European organization won the Peace Prize uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. So we have these people that were nominated uh, and we have these people that won it. And maybe you can speak to some of the more egregious winners uh, because we can't blame who got nominated because anybody can nominate as I understand it. But what about some of the most egregious victors in, in winning the Nobel Prize? What stands out to you? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 funny that you mentioned these nominations because it's just like, I, I did not know. I mean, I was so shocked when I discovered that, you know, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, I mean, I, I, mean, I can't think of, anyone worse, right? Uh, I mean, the opposite of a peace champion. 
And, um, and, and, you know, you mentioned before, you know, Trump has been nominated for next year's prize. And also uh, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin has been nominated as well. So it's going to be an interesting year. Um, <laughs> and, um, um, but some of the, uh, you know, really, um, the ones that really stand out to me is um, the, the 1973 award to Henry Kissinger and the leader of the North Vietnam, uh, Le Duc Thu. And, um, and Le Duc Thu actually, the leader of North Vietnam, he actually refused. He refused to come to Oslo. He did not want to receive the prize uh, because as he, you know, you know he, was, he rightfully um, claimed, peace had not been established in Vietnam. I mean, the, the United States was carpet bombing, you know, secretly Cambodia and Vietnam at the same time as the prize was being awarded that year. So it's really that one really stands out as a, as as one of the one of the worst and one of the most controversial um, prices. And and again, this you know, 1973. This was you know during the you know the Cold War, um, and Norway. Uh, is very is, is placed you know we we border to Russia in the north and we have this long coastline, so Norway has always been very sort of strategic, um, and also full of resources, oil um, and gas and that sort of thing. So it's so Russia has always had an eye on Norway and sort of been threatening every once in a while to sort of you know invade and take over, and so uh, NATO and the U.S has always been and still is today a very strong ally probably the, the most important ally that norway has and mm. also trade partner so the us is extremely important to norway and we depend on us soldiers who are placed here to protect norway's borders so um that was one of these prices where norway definitely needed to show the United States that we, you know, we want to be connected with you. Um, you are our, you know, you know, we're bonded, you know, like we, we want to bond with you and stay and stay, uh, you know, strengthen these ties. Um, so in a lot of these prices, we see that. Now, there's another one too, in 1980, 1994, uh, the prize went to Yasser Arafat, um, uh, Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Peres um, of Israel. And that one, I mean, Yasser Arafat was a terrorist, right? So it's it's kind of hard to, to see where he, and he actually showed up um, at the priest price ceremony and he was armed. He had a, he had a pistol <laughs> on him. And of course that's illegal in Norway. So you know, he had to, you know, reluctantly give that up, you know, like as he was walking into the, to the ceremony hall. And it's just, you know, he never, he never stopped worrying, you know, he just never did. Yeah. And it's just, that's like one of the, but that, but that year, it looks like the Norwegian committee wanted to shed light on the Norwegian government's um, role as a peace mediator because that award came right after the Oslo Accords um, in 1993, where Norway was this, this peace broker and mediator trying to find you know, a peaceful solution to the Middle East. And so it looks like, although um, actually war broke out again between the Palestinians and the Israeli, um, even before uh, they announced the price that year. So, the, the, the Oslo peace accords did not hold, it just didn't. So they do that sometimes, they give out these sort of premature, before we know, you know, be, before it's sort of settled, they give it out and then it's like, oh, afterwards, you know, with, in hindsight, like, oh yeah, that was definitely premature. So another one that I think is, that I personally find uh, quite egregious is the 2006 award to uh, Muhammad Yunus, who is the founder of, uh, he's been called the founder of microcredit. And um, poverty reduction is definitely, I think it's definitely important work for, to stabilize the world and you know, to as a foundation for peace, right? 
But that, that is a price that definitely falls outside the scope of the peace price as it stands today. Now, maybe it should be included, but that's something, and, and I do think there's a, there's a call for a definition, to have a public definition and some guidelines, right, as to what type of work should we include into this price so that it doesn't look like they just randomly give it to someone and then just call it peace, right? So that, you know, we have that aspect too. And also uh, there has been a lot of controversy around uh, Muhammad Yunus um, in, in the aftermath. And um, he, um, there's, you know, there was a scandal here in Norway because the Norwegian government gave a lot of funds to his, to his bank and his foundation. And then it turns out that he took a lot of that money um, into his own pockets basically. And um, yeah, and, and, and it hasn't been proven either that microcredit actually helps the poor. So it's a little sort of, you know, difficult that area. Um, and then the peace prize in the recent years have really tried to, um, to give the prize more to, to, um, to colored, to blacks and to women, sort of to also, you know, as they wanna be politically correct, and which is a good thing. Um, but then sometimes they give it to, um, it doesn't help women if they give it to women who, who don't have the values, who are not peace champions. So that's also, I have a chapter on that in the book. And, and the most yeah. egregious example in that chapter for me is really um, the former president of Liberia, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. I mean, she... Um, was definitely a powerful figure and the first female president in the, in Africa. So, I mean, she, you know, deserves definitely some recognition. Um, but she also, I mean, her history, she was, um, she, I mean, she had a hand in the, the genocide of, of Charles Taylor back in, you know, in, in Liberia. Um, during the revolution there. I mean, and she was, she was actually the, the political figure. She was the one who was raising money for Charles Taylor. So she, that woman has blood on her hands, right? So she's definitely not um, a peace champion in Alfred Nobel's view. Nice. So I think it's, it's, it's really sad when it, it appears that sometimes the committee doesn't really do its job it's research and we don't even know right because i mean as you know because i think it's the same thing with the science prices right that everything is so secret right like the, yeah the, for 50 years i mean in some cases exactly so they don't even they, they don't feel that like they have to justify or tell us anything and so we don't know what kind of research they did in in the the case of um of um ellen johnson Sirleaf, it, it it sort of appears like they didn't do much research at all. They just the fact that she was the celebrity because she was the first you know female female president in Africa, and she was on the cover of Time magazine as one of the most powerful people in the world. And so you know it, it, they do that sometimes. They give these sort of celebrity prices, and um, and of course you know it, that doesn't create trust either. Oh. In, and you mentioned women, and it reminds me, you have a chapter that opens up the book uh, about Alfred and Bertha. And it seemed to me that, you know, there's sort of this, with all these rumors that, you know, Alfred Nobel, there's no Nobel Prize in mathematics uh, because Alfred Nobel's wife was having an affair with a famous mathematician, and he was, uh, he was quite aggrieved and, and humiliated. But, the, uh, but that's, of course, not true. He was never married. And I think he had an unrequited love. And in some cases, he was quite, uh, you know, love struck and, and, uh, and taken advantage of by women who beguiled him. Can you say something about his, his love life and how that may have been the contributing factor to his creating the Nobel Peace Prize? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, that's a, that's really a, a, a fun, fun sort of fun fact. Um, yeah, so he never married and, you know, he wasn't, he, he didn't have a lot of social skills. I mean, he was extremely brilliant and, 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 and also extremely wealthy. I mean, he was, I think, one of the wealthiest people back in, in those days, right? Because of his success with dynamite. 
And, um, but his people skills were not always uh, that great. So um, he, he, you know, he thought that the, you know, he lived in Paris, um, you know, he settled down in Paris after many years of traveling. And um, he, he uh, wrote to his brother, Robert, that the, the Parisians were, you know, were stupid, the Parisian women, the Russians were much more um, uh, educated, he said, but they, you know, they had an antipathy to so, you know, he said stuff like that. And it was really funny. And, uh, and uh, you know, and he, it, what he did was he put an ad in the newspaper in Austria, in Vienna, looking for um, sort of a personal uh, assistant slash secretary, uh, but really he was looking for a, for a wife, right? So, um, and, and the, so, and there was this woman who responded to his ad and she, um, her name was Bertha von Kinski. Um, who, she would later become Bertha von Suttner. And she is actually the first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize in, in, in uh, 1905. And she was this young, extraordinary woman. She um, came from a very sort of old and, and uh, respected no, um, no, you know, noble family. She, she was highly educated, well-mannered, all of that, but her, her family didn't have any money, so she had to work for a living. So she was the, the nanny in the von Suttner family in Vienna. And of course, the eldest son in the von Suttner family fell in love with her and she fell in love with him. And she was, you know, seven years older than him, I think, or something, and she didn't have any money. And so the mother, of course, you know, von Suttner, she, of course, opposed, you know, she was, you know, did, would not have this, this affair. And so um, she forced Bertha to re reply to Alfred Nobel's ad in the paper. And so, and she got the job because, you know, like they, they were, you know, writing letters back and forth and, and, um, and Alfred really enjoyed that, you know, she was so intelligent and, you know, he could talk to her about everything and she was really interested in, 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 in politics and in, in the environment, of, you know, everything. So she started working for him in Paris um, and, but she, she only stayed for a couple of weeks, I believe. And um, because when she realized that he, he was in love with her, then she felt she had to tell him that, you know, listen, you know, my heart is taking, taken, I'm in love with someone else and uh, it wouldn't be right for me to stay, you know, and work for you. So she left and she went back and she actually married. So this uh, von Suttner uh, young man and uh, they were of course, you know, thrown out of the family, you know, for like 10 years before they were accepted back in again. But so she and Alfred kept in touch over the years and they, they remained friends and they wrote each other, you know, letters and they would even meet, you know, with, you know, her husband. So, and, but the thing is, I think Alfred never got over her. He loved her till the bitter end. And she was, she would become this, this pioneer in Europe um, when it came to peace. She would organize these amazing peace conferences. She wrote a book that became a bestseller that was called Lay Down Your Arms. She was really a front figure when it came to peace in Europe. And so and they had many discussions, you know, back and forth, what was the best way to, to, to create a more peaceful world. And um, when he wrote his final will, he sent it to Bertha. And so what do, you, what do you think? And she wrote back and she was really touched. And uh, because really everything that he wrote in there about the Peace Prize was something that she had been speaking about for years, right? So it was really, um, to me, it was really his final declaration of love to her. And uh, so it was kind of beautiful, actually, when she, she should have been the first winner, winner of the prize, but because she was a woman back then, they probably felt the committee that they couldn't give it to a woman. Yeah. So she wait for five years before she got it. <laughs> <laughs> that happened with the physics prize as well to Marie Curie, who was originally not included 
amongst the troika of recipients of the second uh, Nobel Prize in physics. And then her husband, who was awarded it, but did actually maybe less work than than uh, Pierre than she did, he refused to accept it. And there was, um, uh, there was an outcry and they finally acquiesced and allowed Marie Curie to receive the Nobel Prize in physics. And then of course she later won the Nobel Prize in chemistry and the only person to do that. Uh, so there's a rich tradition of both women uh, winning it and women being overlooked. But I love particularly in Betraying the Nobel, your latest, greatest masterpiece, uh, how you really bring to life that, you know, we kind of have this patronizing attitude towards women that, you know, if, ever, if women just ruled the whole world, everything would be fine. And, and, and you bring out, you know, kind of uh, some of the truth to that, but also some of the, you know, the real flaws in that logic, in particular with the uh, with the former or the uh, the former prime minister of Myanmar, Burma, as uh, that used to be known, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. I think you say her name. Uh, say something about her because I think you know she, in some ways, it, it typifies the bad Nobel prizes. There are good Nobel prizes we agree on, and then there are bad ones. And yet they never get revoked. And I wonder what you could say about that. Would you reform it by at least revoking the mass murderers? I mean, can we get rid of the mass murderers? I agree. Why, you know, why would you, uh, you know, why can't you just, I mean, of course, I get it that what they've been saying in the past is that they can't, of course, guarantee what a candidate, what a winner will do later on in their life, right? That's we understand that. When it comes to, 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 uh, to the, the you know the prime minister of or the head of, of Myanmar, I mean she really is responsible for for genocide. And you know there's there has to be a time if there's one time in peace press history that a prize should be revoked, revoked I think it's this one. She and now it looks like she's going to be uh, reelected. As, as head of state of Myanmar. And she's also under investigation by the International Court of Justice in The Hague, and she has to answer to, to them for, for crimes against humanity and genocide. So she might actually end up in jail. And do we really want that as a, as a sort of standing example and, and, you know, and, and inspiration to the rest of us? I don't think so. So, I mean, there is, I think, definitely it's a disservice to to the Nobel prizes in general, and it's a disservice to 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 the world, to to all of us, um, to and disrespectful. Yeah, and I think it's ultimately done at their peril because you know we have egregious examples in in physics. William Shockley, one of the co uh, inventors of the transistor, later went on to promote eugenics and start the. Uh, Nobel Prize sperm bank of all things to hopefully uh, you know eliminate the effects of lesser intellects within society as he called them uh, really reprehensible ideas and I know if I had a prize and and somebody like that were to win it I'd want to revoke it to preserve the prestige of the Keating Prize which you know probably will never happen it comes with a pack of chewing gum uh, but uh, but besides that um, I want to know is there hope for the Peace Prize I don't feel terribly optimistic about the Nobel, other Nobel Prizes because no one's ever rejected uh, the Nobel Prize in physics. In other words, no one's ever turned it down because it's had, you know, kind of this very checkered past in some instances. Uh, and it's held in such high esteem, I actually consider it in my book, uh, losing the Nobel Prize, a sort of idle religious talisman for secular people. Is there hope for reform in the Nobel Peace Prize, at least, before it's too late? I think so. I mean, my I, my book is a hopeful book because um, I think with enough, uh, if enough people uh, are aware of what's going on, and if there is pressure from you know internationally for them to change, and uh, you know if we shed light on the dysfunctions of uh, the the whole process and the committee. I believe there is hope and you know it doesn't take even that much and i think perhaps even you know brian that if we can put enough pressure on one of these prices it will have a ripple effect also on the other prices because there is a call for the nobel foundation in stockholm which is supposed to be which is the organ that is supervising all of these prices and they actually have the power to um to to you know ask questions and to you know to um, to actually 
take back a prize if the institution that is administrating the prize is abusing their power and not following the instructions in the last will. That is actually their job. Now, they have never done anything with any of the prizes, but I think um, with some pressure and uh, you know knowledge about this, awareness about what's going on internationally, maybe they will do something. I think there is hope for that. And, um, and I think it's important what you're saying about the science prizes as well. And, it, and by the way, your book, Losing the Nobel, is such a great book and, you know, that I can highly recommend. And it's so interesting and fun. And uh, so, you know, we definitely need to have the link to that up on the, up on the show notes um, to, this, uh, to this episode. But I do think there is hope, Brian, because I do think, and I do think, and I think it doesn't take that much to, to write this ship. I think we need more um, transparency in the process. You know, we need to stop electing politicians on the Peace Prize Committee and select people who have a proven interest in the cause of peace. And we need some guidelines that are publicly known and that they have um, sort of outlined and worked on in cooperation with the Nobel Foundation in Stockholm. I think those three things, and we're at least going in the right direction. Absolutely. I see our friend Maddie has returned, but I just want to, uh, again, commend this book to all the listeners out there. It's, it's not a dry book about, you know, the intricacies of some prize given out in, in Norway. It's a book that speaks of the influence of, of ideas and of uh, one man's vision for bettering the entire planet, and that has succeeded to a large extent. Uh, but, you know, may face some uh, perils if not, uh, you know, if the kind of clarion call that Uni has presented in this spectacular book, if they're not heeded. But as she says, it's a it's a it's such a charming book. It's I read it in a couple hours, which is saying something, given all the books I'm reading uh, for for my uh, day job. And Uni, I just want to thank you so much for sharing this book with the world. I think I channel Alfred Nobel in saying that you are helping to restore his noble vision. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. It's such a, you know, it's, it's always such a pleasure to be talking with you. And I think the same of your book. And I think it's just, I think, you know, together we're, we're bringing awareness and, and, and doing something right to, uh, for a better world, because that's exactly what Alfred Nobel wanted with all of his prices. Right. So, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys. What a great conversation. Um, and I think it's, I think it's so timely, especially here in the U S as we're kind of having this national conversation about our institutions and are they serving us? And do we need to revisit some of the decisions we made in the past? <laughs> especially um, in Hollywood and Los Angeles, Maddie, where you are, you know, oh, where yeah. they, they, they have reformed a lot of Hollywood thanks to uh, very courageous voices like Uni and others speaking out, you know, the me too movement and others. And, and you see reform, can be possible if people pay heed to the types of courageous voices like Uni's. Absolutely. Um, Uni, you had something special to share with our listeners, um, that, a link that we're going to put in our, our show notes. Can you tell, tell a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, and definitely uh, uh, we need to get Brian's book uh, and link to that as well in there. And also I wanted to offer a free gift um, as a surprise to to anyone who's who's listening to this episode and who um, and who buys uh, either Brian's or or my book, to, to just click on that link and you can download something. It's um it's a uh, it's a free gift and just to you know say thank you for listening and um, yeah. I'm gonna buy another copy just for that. Even the, even <laughs> though I got I got a free copy for writing a blurb for it, um, along with Michael Nobel. You should know that. The, it's, yeah. you know, Alfred didn't have children. So the only living relatives uh, Uni had uh, befriended. And now he wrote this wonderful foreword for this book. And so now I'm actually one degree separated from a Nobel, thanks to uh, Uni. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting closer and closer, Brian. That's right. I might, I might have a new title for my next book, you know, Losing the Nobel <laughs> Peace Prize. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
All right. So um, there is going to be one more link in our episode notes, um, and that link is going to take you to a video conversation between Uni and Brian. Um, so if you want to, you know, expand from here and learn mo even more um, fun details about the history of the Peace Prize, click on that link. Um, and thank you guys so much for listening. Uni and Brian, thank you so much for making the time for this conversation today. It really was fantastic. I had so much fun listening and um, I'm looking forward to checking out the book as well. Thank you, thank Maddie. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everybody. Um, is there anything else I've forgotten to mention? Any other things you want to tell our listeners about before we say our goodbyes? Um, I, I found it really fascinating to delve into a little bit more of Uni's uh, previous book, The Mystery of the Lone Wolf Killer, because I think there is kind of a commonality between this notoriety, this fame, this aspirational uh, contest that the Nobel Prize, no, I'm not in any way comparing it to the two subjects, but that people seem to seek this notoriety and that there, there is this kind of un, unbridled or unchallenged uh, need within human beings to, to achieve this. And, um, and I, I just think it's, 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 uh, it's lovely. So I, I have um, you know, some links in the video interview I did on the Into the Impossible podcast, my podcast here at UC San Diego with Uni to her two TED Talks. So please check those out as well. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, Brian. All right, so I think we're all we're all talked out for today, but there's lots more content content where this came from. Um, if you haven't already, subscribe to the Skylight Books podcast page for the latest updates. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again to our guests Uni Turatini and Brian Keating uh, for their great conversation about betraying the Nobel. It's out now, so you can get your copy at Skylight Books. All right, everybody, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.